But my goal was always, always, always to work with kids because I think there's enough information out there for adults. There's all the information in the world out there for adults. Adults, we know what we should be eating and what we shouldn't be eating. What we choose to eat is up, is up to us to a point. Um, but children, there's very little food education in Ireland uh, available for children. And certainly not at the level that I teach, which is preschoolers, mostly. Welcome to Social Fabric. In this program, we'll bring you conversations with people discussing their passion and the interaction with their community. We explore how different jobs, careers or achievements can inspire us to make small changes to improve our lives within our own community. You can find more episodes on socialfabric.ie or wherever you get your podcast. The program is also broadcast weekly on Dublin's Near FM 90.3. I'm your host Andreas Splendori and this week my guest is Deidre Doyle. Deidre runs a business called the Cool Food School. Her aim is to teach children from Montessori primary and secondary level schools appreciation of food and the importance of a good diet. This is my conversation with her. Can I call you up a while on Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Sit and talk a while. Been so long now since I've seen you, it's nearly ten years gone. But in April that you passed through, why didn't you call? Don't I deserve a call? This ain't no love song, baby, or sad farewell. You've been on my mind started yes. and uh, <coughs> Doyle isn't it? Deidre Doyle yeah yeah Deidre Doyle well thanks a million for yeah, giving me your time <laughs> and uh, I think what I'd like to start from I'd like to start from what you're doing now because then that will give us an idea and then we'll come back and move around a little bit so <laughs> your business is called the Cool Food Food School yes it's um, the idea of the business is to teach healthy eating to kids um so I'm first and foremost a mum. I have three kids and everything. And I'm also a graduate of the hotel and catering industry. So food has always been a big thing for me. I was always interested in food. I always liked eating in good restaurants. Um, I always worked in the food industry for a long time. And so I had access to good food. Um, and when I had my kids, I wanted to feed them as best I could. So I breastfed as long as I could. I cooked everything from scratch and <clears throat> I was very strict about what came into the house in terms of food and that was all fine until they went to primary school and then things kind of went downhill after that because they were surrounded by other children that didn't necessarily follow those same, I don't want to say rules, but <clears throat> they didn't have the same, they weren't eating the same food, I suppose. Um, and... I started to do a little bit of reading about it. But I, I suppose I could just see that children were not eating vegetables. They just don't eat vegetables. And all the anecdotal evidence out there is that children don't eat enough vegetables. All the all the actual hard evidence says that children don't eat enough vegetables. And vegetables are crucial for our health. So um, I was working for a charity and... The time came for me to give that up um, because it was just, it was too hard for the kids and everything. So um, I gave that up and I went back to retrain as a health coach because food was something I was really passionate about. Um, so I retrained as a health coach and that kind of blew my mind a bit. I trained um, in the IINH in Bray just down the road here. What's the IINH? The Irish Institute of Nutrition and Health. Okay. And that kind of blew my mind a bit because like I knew I knew food was important for our health, but I didn't actually realize the impact that food has on our health. And um, it sent me on a whole journey down a Google a rabbit hole at night. Um, and so when I finished that, that was just a year. And when I finished that, I started researching the business and looking at how I would set it up and what I would do. 
But my goal was always, always, always to work with kids because I think there's enough information out there for adults. There's all the information in the world out there for adults. Adults, we know what we should be eating and what we shouldn't be eating. Um, what we choose to eat is up, is up to us to a point. Um, but children, there's very little food education in Ireland uh, available for children. And certainly not at the level that I teach, which is preschoolers, mostly. So, yeah, so I started to uh, uh, set up the business. I did a little bit of um, research. I did some, my local Montessori, where my kids went, allowed me to come in and do the classes there, which I did for free. Um, but it was great to give me an idea of how to structure the classes and how to work with the kids. And I had this great idea. I'll go in now and I'll be the teacher and I'll sit down and the children will all listen to me and I'll go, this is what you eat and this is what you don't eat. And But I quickly realized that that's not the way the children at that age learn. So now I my focus is on making the classes fun. And um, so sometimes I get dressed up. Um, I kind of go into character when I go into the class. So um, I have a little... I have a friend called Farmer Joe who's back in the field and he's pulling uh, fruits and veg well pulling veggies for me um and I bring him into the class sometimes I use my my banana phone he might ring me on my banana phone um and we do things like uh tomato squirting and food listening and um planting like when I plant seeds with the kids they get to name their seeds um and we sing a little song to the seeds so it's all getting them engaged with food. Okay. Okay, I'm going to ask you a couple more things of that. Yeah. Give me your first song. My first song is, this is my, uh, this is the song of my life. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, this is the one that we played at my funeral, I think, because um, it's a Hot House Flowers song. Yeah. So uh, I was a big, uh, when I was in college, um, they had just kind of hit the scene, I suppose. And um, their song, Don't Go, um, had just, I think in fourth year, when I was in fourth year in college, it was just everywhere. And that's my big memory of college when I was at GMIT in Galway. Um, and I've seen them several times since, and I saw them just recently in the Vail Theatre in uh, Greystones. They're brilliant. Yeah, there's smell fresh cut grass and it's filling up my senses and the, the sun is shining down on the blossoms in the avenue. There's a buzzing fly hanging around the bluebells and the daisies. There's a lot more love in you. But in this world, don't go. Don't leave me running out. While the sun smiles, stick around half a while, yeah. And I'll lie warm on the south, sandy beaches in my. I saw some photographs, I went to your website, I saw some photographs of what you do with the children uh, and you know, you have uh, vegetable toys and, and everything. So it's very much down to interaction with the children, you can understand. What, what interests me though, and I, I love the idea, and I have seen certain things in, in primary school, where my kids in primary school, where, they, where people brought in for a day and did a food appreciation, what have you. But what I was taught... Uh, that was it. That was a day, and then there was another day where they did something else. I kind of went in one year and went mm-hmm. out of the other. So, what what do you do to make sure? Because I suppose you're trying to create a positive habit for the kids. Yeah, absolutely, and that's uh, that's a big problem um, because what I, when I go into preschools, what I ultimately what I want to be doing is teaching them on a weekly basis. Yeah. Um, so, what I offer is a six week course. So to go into the preschool once a week for six weeks. But the issue is that is that the parents have to pay for that. And a lot of the preschools, understandably, don't want to don't want to ask the parents for more money because they're already paying. Or the parents don't want to pay. So even if the if the schools ask them, the parents don't want to pay. So that is a real issue for me. Um uh, so I have developed a one-off workshop so it's just one of my workshops and I'll just go in and teach it on a one-off basis and that is kind of what you're talking about is me coming in on a one-off basis so for the kids it, it doesn't give them the maximum exposure or the it, it's not creating lasting habits at all um, 
But the other thing I wanted to say, um, Andrea, is that I, when I was starting my uh, research into the business and I went to Australia for Easter about three or four years ago and I was getting on the plane and I had brought with me the Sunday Times magazine to read on the plane and inside there's this massive big article about food education and about a, a form of food education called, a sensory food education program called Sapere, which is thought developed in France and then is thought in about 10 or 11 different countries around the world and I was reading it going oh my god this is what I want to be doing so I contacted them and I ended up going to England for um, a meeting with them and so I now teach that program and I've taught it to teachers um, and I've taught it in schools but I need funding for it because it's the it's designed to be thought on a not-for-profit basis and the Sapere, I read a little bit about it. It is a sensory, uh, it's appreciation. Yeah. It's everything yeah. to do with food. So, yeah. And is that, um, when you say, so the idea is to teach it to the teachers. Yeah. So then they would be the ones yeah. saying, okay, well, look, we need better canteens or whatever that might be. Because you mentioned you'd, the reason why you started because your kids went into primary school, but secondary school is probably worse. Oh, don't talk to me about yeah. secondary school, yeah. <laughs> because just, yeah, uh, we did my it. journey in secondary school, it's yeah. like, oh. And, and I just, and like, I know <laughs> what you're saying, and funding out, but, and I suppose in a way, I mean, what you're trying to do is to improve children's health from the start. Yeah. Which obviously has a major benefits going forward. Um, so funding would make sense as opposed yeah. to pay for HSE or whatever. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So instead of paying the billions on uh, all the lifestyle related illnesses that come with a poor diet um it'll be great to get just a very small amount of that money now to um teach the teachers so uh, i'll explain a little bit more about the Sapere program Please, yeah. it's um so it's sensory sensory food education but it's um something that it's very sustainable for the teachers to teach in the classroom and it's very simple it's very inexpensive it's very effective um so for example when i te- teach teachers i'll show them some of the experiments but it's very easy for them to take them back into the classroom and it's things that they can do on a daily basis with their kids that brings food into the classroom in a really positive way. Mm. So it's not about giving stickers for eating your carrot sticks or it's not about it being just a short-term program. This is something that teachers can teach all year. So, for example, and also it's stuff that the teachers can incorporate into the curriculum. Um, So it would be, for example, the teacher would bring in something as simple as an apple and an orange and they would say to the kids right how do we know this is an apple and how do we know this is not an orange and how do we know this is an orange and not an apple mm-hmm. so that is getting the kids thinking about the shape the color the smell the size the taste whatever all that kind of stuff and then the teacher could give them all a sample or another thing that they could do is they could she could bring she or he could bring in four or five different types of apples and they could all do a little taste experiment. So, right, let's cut up all these different apples and see which apple do you like the best. And that could be used as a little a class in literacy. So they could say, right, well, that one's really sweet. That one's really sour. I don't like that one because I don't like it. It's too sharp or whatever. So you're creating classes around the food, so to speak. And the other, another little one that we do... Um, there's a thing called neophobia. I don't know if you've come across that word. Yes, well, it's, yeah, it's the, the fear of new, new things. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's used very often in, in, ter- in, in terms of food. So it's the fear of new food. Um, so this, um, this program kind of helps to break down neophobia, the fear of new food in kids. Because a lot of the time kids will look at something and go, oh, I'm not touching that. It's disgusting mm. or it's green. I'm not going to do that. Um, whereas some of the little experiments help to break down that that fear so there's there's one that i was um explained to somebody recently so the teacher would bring in three three uh jugs of apple juice and you'd color one red and one blue and leave the other plain so the kids have to look at the say the red one first and they say okay teacher will say what do you think that is they'll i've done this a few loads of times with kids and they're like oh it's cranberry juice it's strawberry juice it's raspberry juice Okay, great. And you write that all down. 
and then they get to, to smell it and then they get to taste it and then after they taste it they have to say what do you think it is now um and then you do that with the blue one and then you do lastly with the apple juice and then at the end obviously the teacher reveals that in fact they were all apple juice they were just colored so what you're trying to do there is that you're trying to get across the message that even though the apple juice look was red and it looked like it might be raspberry juice or whatever cranberry juice in fact until you tasted it yeah. you didn't actually didn't know but it's the famous you know have some broccoli and i don't like broccoli but you yeah. never tasted it and, you know it's the yeah. classic yes yeah. do that yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah interesting give me your next song and i'll ask you something else about it okay um this is another one for my funeral i know <laughs> it's gonna be a long one <laughs> Um, the moment I uh, the moment I wake up, do you know the song? Oh, oh uh, yeah, Aretha. the moment I wake up, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that Aretha Franklin? Is it? Uh, she does a version of the right, yeah. For all you, that one, yeah. yeah. Very good. Why that? You just well, I don't know. I just I just have always loved it, and I actually um, we played it at our wedding at the signing of the register. It's not it. It's not a hymn. So you weren't allowed to play it. Just really curious about all this because it's, it's as I say, it sounds wonderful. And that's why I wanted to talk to you, and and it, it does make a lot of sense. It's practical. It's easy in a way, you know. Everything's easy once you know it. But you know, yeah, it's a, yeah. But the other thing that I'm curious about. So from from the school. So you, let's say you do the program. You manage to do a program with the Montessori for six weeks, and then yeah. all the kids. And obviously, not every single kid will eat hundred percent veg or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But the other thing I'm curious about, from there to what is actually available, the shopping we can do, how we do it, and you know what's how we do, how do you deal with all of that? Because you can only you can only do certain certain amounts. You can only say, look, eat more carrots, eat more veggies. But then, yeah, well, I suppose part of what I do in my program is I um, always send an information sheet home with the kids. And as much as possible, I'll send home. So say if we're doing a tomato, tomatoes one week, I'll send home a tomato with the kids so that they, when they get home, they can bring that, um, not just the sheet, but the actual tomato. And that creates a real talking point for the kids uh, with the parents or their mind or whoever's looking after them. And then I often give them homework. <clears throat> so their homework might be something like, I want you to... Um, go into the shops and find different varieties of tomatoes or I want you to um, listen to your food for the next week. I want you to tell me what your food sounds like or it might be um, I want you to eat three different types of apples between now and next week. So I suppose what I want <coughs> to do through my um, through my classes is I want the kids, I want to empower the kids to, to want to eat the food. So I'm not telling them, don't eat this, don't eat that. What I'm telling them is, look at what is out there. Look okay. look at the amazing array of tomatoes that are out there. Why don't you go and taste the yellow one? Does the yellow one taste the same as a, as a red one? Does the round one taste the same as, a, um, as an oval one? Or <clears throat> look at all the different apples you can buy. Do they all taste the same? So I want the kids to be going into the supermarket with their parents and going, oh, mum, can we try that apple today? I've never had that one. Or I really liked this one in class. Can we try that one again? So it's very so it's that positive um, messages for the kids to be bringing home to their parents to encourage their parents to go out and do better shopping. Yeah, no, and it's interesting because you're obviously working on the curiosity of the children, which yeah, is it's absolutely be curious about. Um, but. Okay, and 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 I, as I say, I, I love don't it. know how that answer the question. No, no, it does, it does. But I, I mean, the, well, obviously, you don't have the answer to what what's in the supermarkets versus what we should be having, no, like in the no, corner shop. That's too big of a question, and yeah. it's not for us to to sort out just yet. Um, 
but then uh, so just tell me about it in terms of you've done this for a couple of years now yeah two yeah. Years, yeah and so what's what's the the feedback you're getting i mean obviously you're making a business out of it and it's getting you know you're doing a few talks you're doing a few festivals and so you're obviously getting out there which is great what's the feedback so far yeah, the feedback from parents is like overwhelmingly, like it's all positive. I haven't had anything Great. but positive feedback. Um, <clears throat> I suppose the frustrating thing for me is that I can't teach all of the children all of the time. So I, I've done things like I've <clears throat> thought children have come to me in different, like I do, do them in different venues as well. I don't just go into schools, but... So and I'll be in a venue and a parent will come up and go, oh my God, that was brilliant. And they're after eating beetroot because I might have made a beetroot smoothie or something like that. Oh my God, I've never eaten beetroot before. Here, Johnny, have a packet of jellies while I'm talking to the lady. I'm like, <laughs> oh no, why are you doing that? <laughs> so I find that really frustrating. Um, I'm sorry, I've lost the question. <laughs> Because <laughs> yeah, no, in terms of feedback, so the, the feedback yeah. is good. Yeah, the feedback is really good, and <clears throat> I've done. Um, I suppose I've done a lot of events. Then recently this year, I've done. I've been on stage a few times, and um, the feedback from that has been really, really positive. Um, and that's great because I'm getting to a much wider audience sure. rather than just in the schools. So I think for the schools, they are weighing up the benefit of <clears throat> having me in. For them, it's different because they're saying, oh, we do this or we do this activity. Sure. It's not about necessarily the benefit that I will bring. Yeah. They like the idea. They love the idea of what I'm doing, but it's they're coming at it from a different perspective. But I've had emails from parents, you know, when I've gone into schools going, oh, my God, thanks so much. Isabel's now coming home wanting to make cauliflower rice or whatever it is. We're now planting seeds. Um, so I have it, the, the feedback has been really, really good. Um, I just want to do more of it and reach more kids. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. So, what's the next song? And it's not for funerals. This no, 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 no. This is not for funerals. <laughs> this is um, let me see, River Dance. Okay, River Which, Dance. The actual River Dance, the famous one. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Anuna. I... Was it Anuna that did it? Yeah, Anuna was the the artist. Anyway. Yeah. Um, God, I can't remember the guy who wrote the music. Moya Doherty and um, Colgan. Um, Colgan, was it? Yeah, yeah, I can't remember. John so. Colgan, I think. Um, that always gives me a shiver up my spine when I hear that music. When, you know, you have the intro to it, it's a really long intro, but then when all the, the dances come out in the line, it just always gives me a shiver up my spine. And I think, like I was, I grew up in the 80s in Ireland, 70s and 80s. And I think I was away at the time when it first aired in Ireland during the Eurovision. I remember being so proud of Ireland. And I think that's what always makes me... Um, that's why I always love the music. And, and because it's Irish music, and we don't hear a lot of Irish music on the radios anymore. I don't mean pop music. I mean actual Irish, yeah. Celtic, traditional Irish music. We don't hear that on the radios, on the radio anymore. Um, so, yeah, I think that's why I love it so much. It just makes me very proud to be Irish and that this amazing thing came out of Ireland and during a time when things were pretty <laughs> rubbish in this country. going to ask you next which is um, give us a little bit of the background because as I was saying to you before uh, we started I always like to know the journey to what you're doing now so yeah you grew up in the 80s where did you grow up and give us a bit of uh, background on that yeah so I'm from Dublin originally um, <clears throat> I grew up in kind of the Dundrum Sandford area my parents are both from outside Dublin so my mother's from Carlow and my dad is from Mayo um, and they both would have had very poor upbringings I suppose which is very typical of Ireland in the 50s um so <clears throat> food was just food you just ate what you ate you ate what you were given 
Um, and my mother was a great cook and <clears throat> there'd always be loads of vegetables and she'd love like turnip is my anytime I eat turnip I think of my mother um and but then I I loved the whole I and we would never have gone out to eat oh, very rarely sure um there was a Chinese down the road in Dundrum that we used to go to uh which was very exotic at the time um I remember my first time having a pizza in Still Oregon when I was in secondary school very first time Pizza was like an, a, a new novel food. Um, and look at it now. Look at pizza. It's kind of ubiquitous. How, why is that? I don't understand that. I don't know. What is it about pizza that everybody loves so much? I don't, know. I don't get it. Um, I can't answer that. I'm Italian, so... But yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're the wrong person to ask. <laughs> um, yeah, so food would have been very plain growing up. Do you know, in Ireland, it was your potato, meat, and two veg or whatever. Um, but when I went to college, so I went and studied hotel and catering management in Galway in uh, the 80s. Food was still pretty rubbish, but I was studying with a lot of people who had come from a restaurant background or who had worked in hotels. And I started working in hotels and um, I started seeing, you know, food, good food. And then I went on to work in hotels. I went... It's a bit of a checkered history now, a bit of a checkered career history. Um, so I finished my degree. I spent, sorry, I spent a year in Switzerland as part of my degree. So we would have eaten out all the time in Switzerland. And that was a whole different food culture to the Irish food culture. Um, I also spent uh, a stage in France. So I would have eaten in France. And again, totally different food culture. Um, and then I went and did a master's in England for a year and food is always a big do you know I always there, there are restaurants I just wouldn't eat in because I just I'm not going to eat in there because food's so crap um there's a lot of fast food chains are not my thing um so after my year in England I went on a bit of a tour of the world I skied and <clears throat> I skied in France and then I went to America and I lived in um, a ski resort in America for about five years. Nice. Yeah, it was fabulous. <laughs> working on the ski resort or? I was working in the ski resort, yeah. I first was working in um, the restaurants. Like I was in a, a resort called Vale in Colorado, which is massive. It's a massive big resort. Um, they had maybe 13 or 14 different restaurants on the mountain. So I worked in a place called Two Elk, which is right up at the top of the mountain. So to get to work, we had to go up. Um, chairlift and then ski down to the next chairlift and then go up that chairlift and ski to the next chairlift and then go up that chairlift and then ski to the restaurant that's some commuting yeah 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 that was our commute every morning so we had to be on the chairlift i think at eight o'clock they'd open it for five or ten minutes for the workers to get up and then after that was closed and then you were late for work so um yeah and then to come home from work we just used to ski home so so that's you're in your mid twenties or something. Or? I was it, yeah. I probably went there when I was uh, so I was twenty one, finishing my masters. Twenty two, yeah, twenty two, twenty three, yeah. Great, great experience. Yeah, it was brilliant. I had a ball. Now I'm not saying I ate very well when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> no. I was in my twenties, and I, no. you know, other, I had other priorities at the time. Um, but I, but again, I was working in the food industry there, and a lot of people that I worked with. Um, worked in really nice restaurants so we would eat in very nice restaurants like my boss um, her husband managed this really Montauk it was an amazing restaurant and we used to eat there for our staff lunch like do you know I this first time we ever had sashimi um, and the food Vale is quite a very rich little town so the food is very um, it's it's really really good. There were a lot a lot of very high end restaurants. So at this stage, you're working in this in the in the in the in the kitchens. Yeah, no, a, no, no. I've never worked. Months. Okay. I've never worked in kitchens. I've worked uh, front of house. So okay. I was managing okay. um, one of the um, on mountain restaurants, um, which were so busy they were just jammers all the time. And um, I also then my last year that I was there, I worked as an event manager which involved managing coordinating events on the mountain, which <clears throat> brought a lot of its own challenges. So we used to do weddings 
up. They created this um, restaurant called the Game Game Tree Lodge, I think it was called. It was a very high end. Um, you had to become a member of it to be able to eat there, but you could only ski to it. And to book it out for an event, I think it was $20,000 at the time. <clears throat> different world. It was a different world, yeah. So I was organizing a wedding for this guy who at the time was a really well-known rally driver and his wife-to-be, who was a model. And they went up to have a test, to test out the menu. And the day they were going up, the there was uh, storms in the area, so they couldn't run the lift. So that was not good. They were not happy. They were like, what if this happens on the day of our wedding? We want our guests coming and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, on the day of their wedding, it was there were storms in the area, but we got them up and then the lifts were closed and that was it until they were coming back down again. So um, we had a lot of different uh, challenges to deal with. <laughs> Sounds brilliant. So tell me about your next song, number four, I think we're on. And then I want to ask you something about the, the next step. Um, number four would be um, Dire Straits, Brothers in Arm. God, that just reminds me of college as well. I, I'm really stuck back in the 80s, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's all right. That reminds that's... me of, um, yeah, the 80s and slow sets and... <laughs> Very good. Very good. These mist-covered mountains Are all When home is the loneliness And always will be Someday you'll Now, I read somewhere um, that after you came back, it might, might have been on your website or, I don't know, uh, or some of the interview you did in the past with somebody else, but uh, yeah. that you came back here but you got into the charities. Tell me about that because that's I always find it fascinating. I love the idea of charities. I, I love a lot of things about charities. This is a lot, sort of, a lot of things I don't like, but yeah, tell me yeah, about yeah. your experience. Well, I suppose I, so. After my stint in America, and I went to Australia for a year, and you know, did my year around Australia, and I came back, and I was thirty when I came back. So, um, and <clears throat> I suppose coming back to Ireland, I was like, oh god, I have to get a proper job now. I can't faff around anymore. Um, so, and the only job I could get at the time was with a charity as an event manager because I'd done the event management in the States. So I said, oh, well, look, I'll give it a try. It's not my ideal job, but I'll give it a try. And I spent three years there. And I suppose what that taught me was that there is more to a job than just the money um, <clears throat> and the sense of achievement that you get from doing something that's worthwhile as opposed to doing something that's just doing something to make more money. Um, so obviously money's never been a, ma- a major uh, motivator for me um, so I you know I worked with a lot of people who were very appreciative of the work I did in the charity even though I was being paid while I was working in the charity but anyway after I left that after three years and I did a couple of other things and I ended up working um, I got into interior designs totally different that's okay <laughs> totally different uh, little uh, side thing Um. And I ended up working for a big chain of shops, who I won't name, um, as a merchandising manager. So. And I was in the job about six months. I was thinking, oh, I don't like this at all. There were people coming in. Now, this was during the Celtic Tiger years. There was people coming in. They were buying stuff left, right and centre. I think one day, it was Halloween, actually. And it wasn't even Halloween. It was maybe, you know, the way they put out the Halloween costumes so early. Mm-hmm. And people were rushing over to the Halloween guy. Oh my goodness, what do we buy? We buy this, 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 this. I was like, hold on a second now. Hold on a second. So I think that started the end for me. And also, I do have a bit of a bleeding heart. And I was really, really, really affected by the tsunami that hit um, Indonesia and Sri Lanka and all that. Um, In that year, that, that was the year I was working in that shop. In that chain of shops, very big chain of shops, um, Irish owned, and <laughs> I'll say no more. 
Um, and I was really affected by that. And also I had come into a little bit of money that Christmas. So I was like, and I had just got married the previous September. And I said to my husband, I was like, I want to do something. I want to do something. I don't want to just give them money because I had already given them money. I, said, I want to do something. Mm. So I signed up to do um, uh, a relief work. So you can go over to uh, you can go over to the country and do relief work. So I signed up to go for a month, and I went to my employer and I said, "Look, this is what I'm doing." And they said, "Well, sorry, you can't have the time off. You're only in here six months, and we can't give you a month off. You can only have a week here." Two weeks there, I said, okay, well, fine, I quit. So I left my job and I went off and I did my <clears throat> month in Sri Lanka and did relief work, which I know there's issues with. I've heard lots of people talking on the radio about things like that. But at the time for me, that was the right thing for me to do. And I um, brought over, my mother had done this amazing coffee morning and raised like 1,500 euros. So I brought that over with me and we gave it to a family and they were able to, build their house with it and that probably is one of the biggest achievements of my life that I was able to do that for somebody so um so I came back after that and it was just before Christmas and I saw a job in the paper for um a charity shop manager and I said I should apply for that and I did and I got it and then I worked with Vincent Paul for nine years then so that was yeah totally (laughs) No, but it's interesting. Uh... No, no, but it's interesting that it, you know, in your post um, college years, which are the fun years, the one you're supposed yeah, to be yeah. traveling, you're supposed to be on the top of the ski lift and having a yeah, good time. Yeah. But you obviously experience all that five star life. Yeah. Uh, and then straight after that, you went into a charity, and you know, it's, it's a really interesting, uh, uh, yeah, combination and glad to hear that you enjoyed the charity more than you do to yeah well i suppose when i was working in america in um the you know that that town and if anybody goes and looks at Vale, it's you'll see there everybody's walking around in fur coats and whatever and five-star hotels five-star restaurants but i was only a worker like i was only you sure. know and when we went to these really fancy restaurants it was because we knew people working in them yeah. and they were able to give us an extra glass of wine bottle of wine you know, free desserts, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's not that I was rich or anything. I was never rich. Sure. But um, but I suppose what when I came home and I worked in that charity for three years <clears throat> and then went and worked in other areas of business, I was like, no, I don't like this at all. There's nothing. There's It's not rewarding. It's not, what am I doing this for? I'm like... Ticking sheets and I, yeah, no, those and I that really. <clears throat> so then, when I started working for the Vincent de Paul, I was like, okay, this is better now. This is, I kind of feel like I'm doing something that's worthwhile, yeah. rather than something that's great. Yeah. Give me your next song, and I want to ask you something. Going back to your current business that I'm okay. interested in. Did I give you the? Oh yeah, the Island by Paul Brady. <laughs> oh, it's a lovely song. Yeah. Why is that? Again, I, oh my god, it's like another college song. It's like I am just stuck in the eighties. I cannot, I cannot move on. Um, I do have a modern song now coming up. Um, yeah, it just reminds me of you know nights sitting around <clears throat> when I went to college. Uh, people will laugh at this. <laughs> uh, when I went to college, we didn't have a TV. It was the eighties in Ireland. We didn't have a TV. We didn't have a phone. We used to rent a TV from the shop across the road and we'd carry it home and we'd have it for the weekend and we'd have to rent the DVD player as well because we didn't have a TV license so we couldn't actually play the TV but we had the DVD player and then we'd carry it back at the you know Monday morning and we'd carry it back across the road. That's great, Alyssa. <laughs> My kids are just like, what? You need what? <laughs> they say the skies are level on a burning those mighty Cedars bleeding in the heat They're showing pictures on the television Women and children dying in the street Now we're still at it in our own place Still trying to... No, I read one thing <clears throat> when I was researching a bit about you. I read that you made a, a submission to the Eructus 
Am I correct? Yeah. The Committee of uh, Children and Youth Affairs. Yeah. And it was all about tackling child obesity. Yeah. Okay, a couple of questions in that. First of all, is child obesity in Ireland as bad as it, they make it sound? Or, and did you get anything with that, with that letter? Did you get anywhere with that letter? Okay, so is childhood obesity as bad? The statistics for a long time have been one in four children are overweight or obese. Um, there's been very recent research that has come out and said it's one in six. Okay. So I suppose that is improving. Definitely improving. Um, but I, I suppose what I do is not necessarily, and you don't have to be obese to be unhealthy. Sure. Um, kids are still not eating vegetables. They are not eating vegetables, and it's it's out there. Everybody, you can see it. I mean, obviously there are some kids exceptions to that, but in all the work that I do and all the kids I see, they might eat maybe a carrot or they might eat some broccoli and that's it. They don't eat anything else. Um, Of course there are kids who do. So irrespective of the obesity levels, I I think my work is still really necessary and important because a bad diet can bring other health issues um that are not that that are not obesity related. And did you get any feedback, any response from the Ruptus? Um so I made that submission and it was one of I think there was twenty um well, I don't know how many submissions were made, but there was there was a report created then that had seventeen or twenty recommendations in it. I wasn't included in the recommendation at the time as a recommendation at the time, but I was invited into the Oireachtas for the launch of the um, okay. of the paper and um, I did speak to all the politicians that were present at the time mm-hmm. so <clears throat> to make them aware of it. So they, some of the submissions were things like um, no targeting kids through advertising, <clears throat> which is the Irish, Health Founda- Irish Heart Foundation um, mm-hmm. champion that cause. Um, there was also the um, No Fry Zone, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's, sure, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the No Fry Zone, I'm a bit um, very sceptical about it because we had one here in Greystone, so the No Fry Zone mm. with, um, with, with yeah. McDonald's. But, yeah, yeah. But, you know, then we have a pizza place beside it and then we have Lidl beside it. So this, you know, it, yeah, it's yeah, still yeah. not healthy food, you know? No, it is very disappointing for the No Fry Zone people, I think, that they set up pizza place right next door it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. but it just on that topic there is um there is a thing called the obesogenic environment have right. you ever come across that, terminology? Come across that no. okay so that is the environment around us that is causing us to be obese mm-hmm. so it is things like that it's things like the prevalence of fast food outlets um in your locality it is the lack of sports facilities it is the availability of high fat high sugar foods everywhere everywhere you turn um and it's that environment and there's lots of other things involved in it too but it's that environment that's causing us to be obese sure um so they're saying that it yes of course there's personal responsibility involved of course but our environment around us is, is making it very 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 hard for people to eat a proper diet and when you look at people who um live in lower socioeconomic areas say the inner city or something like that they actually have very little access to fresh food so their corner shop might sell a couple of apples and oranges but it won't it's not going to have a whole fresh array of broccoli and carrots and whatever and a lot of those people won't have the means to transport themselves to get transport to somewhere that has that those options and then they don't have the wherewithal or the knowledge or the education to do something with it so there's a lot of issues at stake there is and uh, what about then as a community um what what okay we always go back to the government directors etc but i always believe that you, you can start small you can start as small as possible, which could be your neighborhood, could be your, yeah, yeah, your yeah. town. And, you know, obviously, sometimes they're bigger than others. But what can we do as a community, whether it's here or in inner city? And what what should we do to improve that? I mean, in England, they did a, there's a town, I forget the name, where they, all the front gardens are 
turn into vegetable right. patch. That's right. a fantastic idea. So, and you literally anybody can pick, you know, pick your carrots, and I'm growing potatoes, pick my potatoes. And it's just transformed. I forget the name of the town, but it yeah. just transformed the town. Now, that's an extreme that not everybody would sign up to it. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. But what else can we do? Because, it, you know, walkability, cyclability, all of that stuff is really important in a yeah. town. Yeah. But well, I, th- I think that's where the climate change thing is going to really help okay. from a health perspective, because I think people are now realizing that mm, maybe it's not so good to eat blueberries that are flown 3,000 miles. Maybe it's not so good to um, eat things that are heavily packaged. Maybe we should look at growing things more locally. Maybe we should look at um, growing more, eating more whole foods that don't come in packaging. So I think that whole climate change thing is actually going to really help with the whole food thing and help with that whole... um, I think growing things is really important and I would advocate for that all the time. And in fact, I'm doing a little workshop with a lady up in Bally McKinney Farm up in Drogheda. Um, so she grows purple potatoes and pink potatoes and she's got, yeah, and purple sprout and broccoli and all that kind of stuff. So we're doing a workshop up on her farm so that the kids can come and see where the food actually grows and they can harvest it and we'll make something with it. Um. So more of that kind of stuff. And there are some people working a little bit in food education that are doing things like that, like Darina Allen in Ballymaloo has been doing that for years. Um, there's another guy called Devin who has a company called Feast who um, does that, goes around schools. And he had a project where the kids planted fruits and veg- uh, vegetables, I suppose mostly vegetables, and then they harvest them and they bring them to restaurants and the restaurants use them. So there are small little things like that going on. But um, yeah, I think the planting and encouraging people to grow is a, is, a, is on a small scale. That can only be done on a small scale, really, sure. um, is a great way forward. Okay. okay, give me a second last song, please. Um, nothing compares to you, Sinead mm-hmm. Manor. I think again. <laughs> I'm leaving the last one is a modern <clears throat> song so I'll leave that till the end and that I, that video of that iconic video of her with just her face just it's a, yeah it's an amazing song and it's a really moving song it gives me a shiver point back every time I hear it it's been seven hours and Division of responsibility. Uh, is there some sort of strategy? Oh, division, by, division of, division respons- of responsibility yeah. by um, Ellen Sater. Ellen Sater. Yeah. And I like that. Just explain a little bit about that in terms of food intake and, and, and education. Yeah. yeah. So, look, I'm a parent. I know lots of parents. And I know what we do and what I've done. I, I absolutely did this is when your child won't eat, you'll run around after them going, oh, come on, eat this, and I'll give you. I'll put the TV on for you or you eat this and I'll give you a sweet or um, if you don't sit down and eat your broccoli, I'm going to, I'm going to, you won't get any dessert. All that kind of stuff. I did that. We all did that. But um, when I went on this journey to, you know, learn more about food and how to feed kids and all that, I came across um, a lady called Ellen Sater, who's kind of the, uh, the guru, I suppose, of uh, healthy of, of dealing with fussy eaters in the States. And she has developed a strategy called the division of responsibility. And I would pass that on to parents as much as I can through my social media outlets or whatever and uh, talks I do. But the division of responsibility states that you as a parent, your response, so it divides the responsibility between your responsibility as a parent and the child's responsibility. So your responsibility as a parent is to provide the food. So it's to cook, to choose, cook, and supply the food and provide it to the child. Um, your responsibility is to make the um, eating surrounds, I suppose, as comfortable as possible and um, 
And that's it. That's your job done. The child's job, on the other hand, is to eat that food. Hmm. They don't want to eat it. That's not your responsibility. You've done your job. It's their job to eat it. Um, if they don't want to eat it, that's fine. Or if they only want to eat some of it, that's fine. It's not your job to worry about that. And I think that's a really empowering thing for parents because parents get so stressed about, you know, oh, Johnny only ate one pea at dinner today. I'm like, that's fine. That's fine. Maybe tomorrow you might eat three. Um, so that's what I do with my kids. I put the food on the table. If they eat it, they eat it. If they don't, they don't. And um, But they don't get anything else. So that's a very important so there's no such thing in our house that if you sit down and you eat a quarter of your dinner and you're 20 minutes later, you come looking for toast. No, no. That was dinner. That was dinner time. No alternatives. Um, I have never, ever, ever cooked more than one dinner. Except for me. I, I'm a vegetarian, so. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, like, I will cook meat for the kids occasionally. Um, so obviously I don't eat that, so I'll, I'll have something else. But, um... I've never ever cooked a second meal and I know a lot of families struggle with that because Mary won't eat this and Johnny won't eat that. No, I don't do any of that. It's one meal. Eat it, don't eat it. It's up to you. Um, but there's nothing else. That's interesting. That um, So what you were saying, we growing up in Sandyford, stroke Dundrum, and you were give, given whatever you were given. That was your dinner time. You sat down with the family, you ate it. Yeah. Whether you liked it or not, that was it. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, effectively, what you what you're trying to do now, which is a very, very interesting, very honourable idea of of re-educating our kids. Basically, your your business wouldn't have existed twenty years ago. You wouldn't need to do it ten years ago, even. No, 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 just, absolutely so not. So, where has it gone wrong? Where has it all gone wrong in the last 10, 20 years? Why have we gone so far away from? Well, I think there's a lot of issues at right. play there, um, Andrea. I think, first of all, women going out to work and not having the time. And I'm not blaming women at all, no, Jesus, no. I'm a woman. I mean, this no, is, no. this is we, sh- we have every right to be going out to work. Um, but because we are going out to work, we're not the state. Like my mother was a stay-at-home mother sure. and she had all the time in the world to cook a dinner. Um, so there's that as a major, major, major issue. And, you know, mums, dads, parents, they're picking up their kids from a crash at six, half six, they're bringing them home, they might have to do some homework with them, or they might have to start the bed routine. Where's the time to cook a lovely dinner, do you know? So time is a massive, massive, massive issue. Um, but in, in response to that, I suppose what I would encourage parents to do is to <laughs> meal plan. I know it sounds boring, but it's very effective and meal plan and do get two or three dinners in the freezer for the during the week um, to avoid that kind of dash to the supermarket to get something to heat up in the microwave. Um, also, because women are working a lot of the time, they have don't have the skills to cook that their mothers would have had. So they are not in turn passing those skills on to their kids. So there's a few generations that have have not cooked. And when you're not cooking, what are you doing? You're you're buying. And what are you buying? You're buying processed foods. Or you're buying takeaways. So that's another huge part of the problem. Um, the availability, back to the that obesogenic environment, the availability and the cheapness of Packaged processed foods. Why would I make fish fingers when they're 90 cents to buy in the shop? That's a very hard argument to dispute, you know? Um, so that is another massive issue. Like, across in my local supermarket, they're selling a packet of chocolate biscuits for 40 cents. I'm like, why would you spend an hour baking biscuits when they're 40 cents in the shops? You wouldn't even... Buy the ingredients to bake your biscuits with. Mm-hmm. So that's another issue. Yeah. That's another issue. So magic one time, if you had your choice today to make your business successful, not I don't mean monetary success. 
successful yeah. for what you really want to get out of it. What would that be? Would it be a franchise option? Would it be to speak to as many people as possible? How would you? Because obviously only you, you can only get to so many schools yeah, a day yeah, yeah, or a yeah. week or whatever. What would that be? What would be the next step for you? Well, I suppose I have two arms of the business. So yeah. I have the arm that teaches the sensory food education on an off-for-profit basis. So with that, I would like it to be introduced into every school in the country because I think it's a bit of a no-brainer. It's just, it's not going to cost government very much money. And okay, it's not the answer to everything. It's, it's absolutely not the answer to everything because mm. it's such a complex issue that one little thing is not going to solve it. But it's it's a step in the right direction. Um, so I would like that to be taught in every school in the country. And also, I'd also like cooking for kids in schools. And then for my own business, I would like, yeah, possibly a franchise. Um, yeah, probably franchising might be the way forward for me. I don't know. We'll okay. see. Yeah, it's a, it's a journey. You you only started that journey, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm still very better. yeah. I'm I'm very passionate about the food education side of things, and um, but the business side of things, I'm I'm. It wouldn't be my forte. <laughs> well, I already thought of while we're talking. I've been thinking about a couple of people that I'll introduce you to that might be of interest to you. Very similar ideas, and and it's funny they came through this podcast. So oh, okay, yeah, brilliant. The whole yeah, idea. Yeah. But before we go, I always ask everybody for a couple of words of wisdom. Okay, did you want my last song? I will in a second, yeah, yeah but just uh, <laughs> I know you really. Since the imagine one is the yesterday one, the only one. <laughs> no, I ask everybody for a couple of words. It's basically a quote, anything that kind of gets you going in the morning. I'm looking at every cloud as a silver lining now, or anything like that. Um, I suppose one thing that stuck with me, and when I got, I'm married 15 years, and when I was coming up to my wedding, I was an absolute stress ball, and um. But I remember saying to myself over and over about things that didn't happen or things that didn't work out. It's not the end of the world. So when those ribbons were not the exact right size, I was like, actually, it's not the end of the world. So I would say that to myself sometimes, you know, if something doesn't go right or, or and actually my mother-in-law is a counsellor and um, she's a very wise woman. And she would say to me as well, this time too will pass. So if something is not going right or if you're in a crisis, this time too will pass. And I always think about that as well. Great. Now, give us your last modern song. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cry Freedom by Hosier. Oh, very good. Very good. And why did you pick that one? I just like, um, I just, the very first time I heard it, I thought, that is a brilliant song. Um, And I suppose I like it because he's local. And when I was working in the charity shop, he worked, he played in the little cafe beside me many years ago before he got... The hot spot, yeah. The hot spot, yeah, with Alva. Um, so he, I suppose I've always had an interest in him more than other musicians. And I just think that song is very powerful. So that's why I like it. That's brilliant. Well, Deirdre, you can't see me for the time. Really no appreciate worries. it. Thanks for having me on it. It is the grounding of a foot uncompromising. It's not for going of the light. It's not the opening of eyes. It's not the waking, it's the rising. It's not the shade we should be past. It. It's the light and it's the obstacle that casts it. It's the heat that drives the light, it's the fire it ignites, it's not the waking, it's the rising, it's not the song, it is the singing.
If you have got this far in the podcast, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share and leave a review on iTunes. It's much appreciated.